Hey, we're live. This isn't a recording, we're live. <laughs> All right, you might have to turn it down just a smidge. Apparently I'm louder than Jared was. All right, well this morning we're going to be in Ephesians. We'll continue our study. We kind of took a break uh, during the Christmas break, and, uh, and we, we got to have Christmas Eve, and hope you guys enjoyed your time with family on Sunday morning. That being said, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians, but I want to start in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, but before we go there, I want to remind you of something that Paul said a few weeks back. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and he says this about you. Now, he's speaking to the Ephesian believers, but he's really speaking to all believers. He says, and you. I want you to think about this for the Ephesians, but I also want you to think about this for you personally. He says, and you, he, being Jesus, made alive. You, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice he doesn't say that you were weak. He says you were dead. You were not alive. He says, you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of the disobedient, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, the fulfilling of our own desires and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So he says, you who were once dead, he's made alive, and you once walked according to these things, the course of the world. You were swimming downstream because it was the easiest way to go, and you had no power to come the other way. You were on a, what I heard one guy say, Ken Graves, he's a pastor in Bangor, Maine, he said, you were on a slip and slide to hell. You didn't have to work at it, it just happened. But, but God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then, I don't know about you guys' version, but in mine it says, by grace you have been saved. By God's undeserved favor, he reached down and he saved you. I love this. He says, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might point to us, basically, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast, for we are his workmanship, we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should now walk in them. I want you to focus on that word in that last verse where he says that we should walk in them. Think about walking. There are many people around the, the county and, and in different counties at state parks today. They're going to go on a, what they call a first day hike. And what it is, is it's a guided tour. You can go. It's free. They have people set up to take you on these guided hikes and you walk. But it's a decisive thing. You have to decide to do it. Like they don't come get you from your house and say, now we're going to take you on a walk. You have to drive there. You have to show up and then they guide you. But the thing about walking is funny is that you have to 
daily put one foot in front of the other. It, you have to make a decision to do so. Uh, many people don't, and so what do they do? They sit all the time. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. You know, we, we get so kind of stuck in our own routine that we don't do anything new. But what he's talking about here is God has works that he has prepared for you and I before the foundation of the earth, before we were ever saved, before Jesus ever died on the cross, he had a plan to save mankind even though mankind had rebelled against God. And that plan was Jesus. And he says not only did God save you by grace through faith, and it, well, you couldn't earn it, but he also says that God saved you for a purpose. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works. We're his workmanship. He created us. And then when we rebelled against him, he created us into new beings, giving us a new heart in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't have to come up with good works on our own. He's already got some planned. We just got to get in step with him. And so I love this because he starts off this chapter. He says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead, now you're alive. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians, he focuses on who we are in Christ and all that he's done for us, the wealth of salvation and a relationship with the king. So I want you to do another weird thing. Don't turn to Ephesians 4. Turn to John chapter 11. Seems like I'm going backwards, right? It doesn't seem like I'm going the right direction. But turn to John 11. And when you get there, and I'll give you a little bit of time, you're going to find an interesting story about a man named Lazarus. And many people know about Lazarus because he's one of the few people that we know of that was raised from the dead. And so Lazarus died. He was very sick. He was somebody that Jesus knew. And basically his family members went to find, out, find Jesus because they knew that Jesus could heal sick people. But by the time that Jesus, he, he hears the news and he says, okay, and then he stays where he's at. He doesn't leave right away to go help. He doesn't go ambulance. You know, somebody calls 911, what happens? They dispatch an ambulance. The ambulance starts flooring it. There's lights and sirens and you've heard it. And they take off right away because time is of the essence when it comes to your health. Thank you for praying for my dad this week. He had a stroke. But the beauty of it is the Lord kept him alive. Now, he may not look at it like that, but God sustained his life. My heart doesn't beat because I make a beat. My heart beats not just because of chemical reaction. God is in control of that. Time is of the essence in matters of the health. And, and so the Lord... Jesus hears about Lazarus being sick almost to death. They send people to go get him. And what does Jesus do? He says, okay, well, we're going to hang out for a couple days. Why in the world would he do that? Even ambulances do better than that. This is the Lord of all creation. Don't you know that time is of the essence? And Jesus is above time. He's also above our health. And he's defeated death. He created life. When Adam and Eve were created out of the dust, the Lord fashioned them out of the dust, and then it says that he breathed the breath of life into their lungs. Adam was alive because God breathed life into him. God is life. And so the beauty of this story is that Jesus hangs out. He doesn't go right away, but then he does take leave. 
He leaves where he's at. He takes the journey. He gets there. And then we come to the story where they're all distraught because Lazarus has died. It's too late, right? And so in verse 38 of chapter 11 of John, it says, Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, little did they know that one day Jesus himself would be placed in a very similar tomb, and that tomb wouldn't keep him concealed either. But there he was, Lazarus, dead. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Well, why is he saying that? Well, I've skipped part of the story, but he gets there. And he says, let's go to the tomb. I want to see Lazarus. And they're all like, uh, he's been dead for four days. Let's not open that thing. Like, let's leave the stone over it. Because according to the King James, by now he stinketh. Right? So that's why they have all the flowers when you go to the funeral home. They, they want to make sure that you can't smell anything because they want it to be a pleasant experience. You can see them for the last time. But in this case, Jesus wants to go see this man who he loved. And they said, he's been dead for four days. Let's not, let's not do this. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he, he prays. He doesn't pray because he has to pray. He is God. But he prays so that all that listened to him would know that it was God the Father that's going to raise this man from the dead. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In other words, Jesus has already been praying about this. He didn't pray about it when he got there. He had been praying about it as soon as he heard the news, but he probably prayed on his walk all the way, just talking with his father. Hey, what do you want to do here, Lord? I am ready to do whatever you have for me. Jesus was completely submitted to the will of his father. And so he says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing around me, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So he's praying out loud for the benefit of those that are listening. And then it says in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come forth. So again, bringing life from his words. Jesus, the Lord over all creation, who spoke the world into existence, he laid the foundations with a voice, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. So, you guys aren't new to this. You've, you've heard stories like this where in the Bible, Jesus raises somebody from the dead. But we all get excited about that instance but that's the beginning of life. That's not life itself. Being born again is an experience of just submission to the Father and calling out to Him and repenting of your sin and then saying, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And many times, most Christians, it seems like anymore, they stop there at birth. But if a baby is born and doesn't have hunger and doesn't learn to walk and doesn't mature and grow, what do you think about that baby? There's something wrong with this baby. Notice what he says to Lazarus here. He says this. He says, well, he says to the people, he says, loose him and let him go. Well, what are they going to loose him from? 
Well, when they would prepare a body to be buried, they would wrap it in cloths. They would put spices on the body so it wouldn't stinketh as soon. And then they would put the body in this grave, right? So when he calls him out, Lazarus doesn't get up and put on different clothes. He just gets up and comes out. He obeys. And as he comes out, he's covered in these grave clothes. And I, I wondered this morning as I was reading this, I'm like, I wonder if he didn't stink, but his clothes did. They were close to his body while he's starting to decay and smell. I know it's a gross thought, and I'm not trying to be gross, but I'm just saying, like, I wonder if he was completely new because God had called him to life, but to show that he had been dead, if the Lord just left his clothes where they actually still stunk. Just a devotional thought. It doesn't say that in there. But as I meditated on this scripture this morning, I was like, I wonder about that. So he comes out, and the first command that Jesus gives, by the way, if you, someone commands someone to, that was dead to be alive, and he walks out, all of a sudden, everyone is obeying that guy's commands. Like, hey, this guy, he's, he's over death. Like, I, I think we should do what he says. If death obeys him, maybe we should obey him as well. He comes out, he's covered. He probably looks like a mummy. You guys have seen movies with mummies. You know, not a zombie. That's different. A mummy. He walks out and he's covered in these grave clothes. And Jesus says, take these grave clothes off. So what is the point in this whole huge segue that begins our study this morning? Back to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 1 said, what? You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Do you see the parallel? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God has made you alive. What's the next step in the John chapter 11 story? Take off the grave clothes. What, the, what does that mean? This is getting deep. I didn't bring my boots this morning. So he's, he's saying you got to take your grave clothes off. God made you alive, but many of us are still walking around with grave clothes. And I say that fully convinced this week that God was revealing to me my grave clothes. And we'll get into them. So if I step on your toes, realize that's not me, it's the Lord. Ronnie Gibbs was all upset at me a couple weeks ago. He's like, man, you've really been stepping on my toes. And I said, it's the Lord. It's not me. I haven't been reading your emails. I haven't been listening to your conversation with your family. Like, God's just trying to work on each one of us, and that's how he does it. His word reveals, it shines light in dark areas. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, we're finally there. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy. So back in Ephesians 2, he had said this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's that word again. So back in Ephesians 4, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I beg of you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk. Judah's getting bigger. He's pulling up on stuff. He's too heavy to carry. We're like, walk, you know. But God's not telling us to walk because he's not strong enough to carry us. He's telling us to walk because we have a responsibility to grow in this salvation that he's given us. We are saved, but he doesn't want us to be saved as though by fire. He wants us to be saved and to live like it. Make your walk match up with your talk. Last week, we talked about how he says in... Uh, in one of these verses, 
He says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word worthy means to the weight. He says, walk, let your, your walk weigh as much as your talk. It's like having a scale. This is how much I talk and this is how much I walk. And I wonder often if I have like one of these kind of scales where I talk a lot or I talk a lot, but my walk is lacking. And so Paul knows this is possibly the case because he's probably struggled with it himself. And he says, walk as if you've been called by the Lord. And so in today's passage in verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well, how do the Gentiles walk? Any of you guys know any Gentiles? People that go by the name of Gentile? Like what, you guys ever met any, like what does he mean by Gentile? He's talking about those who are without salvation, those who are without Christ. In his day, before Jesus came along, before Paul's writing this, the Gentiles were those without a relationship with God. They were not Jews. Anybody that was not a Jew, they would call Gentiles. And so they were without a relationship with God. He says, therefore, I testify in the Lord that you should, keyword should, no longer walk in the, in, as the rest of the Gentiles walk, which is, here's how they walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling or numb or having their consciences seared is the idea. They can't feel anymore. They've given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So there's a lot of wording there, but what he's saying is, is they walk without a relationship with God. They walk as if God doesn't exist, as if there's no judgment. He says, but you guys know that there is one, and you guys know that you've been saved to a living hope that your Savior has saved you so that you can have a purpose and you can walk in newness of life. And so if that is the case, don't walk like the rest of the world does anymore. Now, for many new Christians, the first thought is, okay, well, then I won't hang out with other people that don't believe like I do. And I think that for young Christians, it's a good idea because for so long we've been enamored and soaked up in the culture that we walk according to the ways of this world. And how do you stop that? Well, my dad always says, you are who your friends are, you know, so fellowship with other believers so you can learn what it means to follow Jesus. If you're always around non-believers, guess what? You're going to become like a non-believer, even though you're saved, you're going to be miserable because you're, you're like, why can't I get any victory over sin? Why, why isn't my life changing at all? Why, why am I not having joy in my relationship with the Lord? Well, you're not around people that want that for you, and they're not going to encourage you to walk with Jesus. They're going to say that's weird, and they're going to discourage you. But what he says is don't walk like this old dead man anymore. Like once God's brought you back to life, why are you continuing to wear those stinky outer garments? And so we think about taking off the grave clothes, and we look towards, he doesn't just leave us at that, like, hey, stop doing all that stuff. When I was raised, you know, most time I would go to church, I would hear all these preachers and they were sweating. They had the hanky, you know, and they, and they were, they were like, stop doing all this. I'm like, okay, but what am I supposed to do? Like, is, Christianity is not about what we're not. It's about who we are. Christian means little Christ or Christ-like. So if I'm not supposed to be like the world, what am I supposed to be like? You're supposed to be like Christ. 
Now, wait a minute. That's a high step. What am I supposed to do with that? Like, he's perfect. I can't be perfect. Exactly. So you're not supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to imitate God. And we'll get at the end in Ephesians 5.1, and that's kind of the verse the Lord gave me for this church, is, therefore, be imitators of God as his children. Imitate your father. Walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Our life before Christ to the Lord stinks. It stinks. And the Lord's not pleased with it. He's grieved by us walking in the flesh. He says, but I've saved you. I've bought you. You're no longer your own. You've been bought at a price. So I'm going to show you what life is really supposed to be like in congruence with who I am as your creator. And you'll have joy in that. He says, but you, after speaking about all these things they're supposed to put off, he says, you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. He doesn't say, but you have not, you have, uh, he doesn't say this, but you have not so learned about Christ. He says, you have not so learned Christ. Well, how do I learn Christ? He goes on to say, if indeed you have heard him, not about him, but if indeed you have heard from him and have been taught by him. One of the key markers of Christians is that they are taught not so much just by a Christian leader or a mentor, but they have a personal relationship with Jesus. They've learned from Jesus. He, he, he doesn't make us have a go-between. We don't have to have a priest tell us what to do. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He comes to us and he serves us. He's the king of glory, and yet he made himself lower than a slave. He died for mankind, and then he says, come to me. I love that, because not everybody has time for me. But the king of all creation says, come to me, and I will give you rest. I want to spend time with you. He died for us because of his great love for us, and he loves us, and he wants to spend time with us. It's so foreign to us because most of us have probably been raised in households where nobody had any time for us. But the creator of the universe has all the time in the world because he's above time. And he says, come to me. I want to spend time with you. And you know what we do with that? We're like, I'm too busy. Instead of the one that wants to spend time with us saying, he's too busy, he's not too busy, we say to the creator, we're too busy. And we get robbed. That's not to be con condemning. That's meant to be, oh, well, I need to take advantage of that. Well, you know, but so here he says, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he says this in verse 22. Here's what you need to do. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The way you think affects the way that you walk. Let me repeat that because it wasn't for me. It was somebody else I heard say this, so it's worth repeating. The way you think affects the way that you walk. So when he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility or the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance, because they don't know. They don't know. Do we know? Have we been taught? Have we learned of Christ? 
Because if we do, then that should change the way that we walk. He says, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, put off the old, put on the new. Now, I thought this was interesting because here we are. It's January 1st. I don't know about you guys, but every time a new year started or a new school year or a new anything, I'm always like, fresh slate, no messes. Here we go. I got a new start. Now, for the believer, we have a new start every morning. That's what Lamentation says. His mercies are new every morning. But if you want to look at it that way, here we are on January 1st. Stacy Tedford's birthday. Happy birthday. And here we are. We're, we're studying this passage that says, put off the old. What's the old? The former conduct with you, which you walked in the futility of your mind when you didn't know that Jesus loved you enough to die for your sins and, and he, you didn't know he had a purpose for you. Okay, so it's not vanity anymore. There's a reason for me existing. So put on, what does he say? Christ. Okay, well, what does that mean? Put him on like a garment? Because here's what we think of. And I was thinking about this this morning too. This is going to sound weird because I'm not a sports guy. But I was thinking about this. Imagine if you're playing for the minor leagues. How many of you guys would like to play some sort of sport professionally? I would. I'm not talented enough to, yeah, you guys, all right. But here's the deal. If you're playing for the minor league, which usually they kind of use as a pool to draw talent into the major leagues, right? It's kind of the, the next step up. Kind of like middle school to high school. They're watching you. They're trying to cultivate some skills. And then when they see that you got some talent and that you're willing to work hard, they're like, hey, we want to put you in the big leagues, whether it's varsity or whether it's major league. Can you imagine if a young man was playing baseball and he was playing the minor leagues, he thought he'd never make it, and then they're like, hey, it's your time. You're picked. You're going to be in the major leagues. Here's your new uniform. And uh, you're going to play in this position. You're going to start. Can you imagine if he gets to that big park and he gets to the new team and he gets ready to go out on the field and everybody's staring at him like, what are you doing? He's like, what? And he's wearing his minor league uniform. Can you imagine? Like, I can't let go of this thing. This is what got me where I'm going. Yeah, but you're, you're in the major leagues now. Like, we gave you a new uniform. You'll get a new one every game. We'll throw the things out. You know, we'll give them away. We'll sign them. They'll be dirty. People will love them when they're sweaty. You know, <laughs> I don't get any of that. But my point is, like, can you imagine you go from the minor leagues to the major leagues, and you're like, I'm not taking off this minor league jersey. And they're like, well, then you can't play. What are you doing? You're on a new team. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, I've given you new garments. You're on my team. Like, I made you alive. You were nothing, and now you're something. And you're still wearing the old jersey. You're wearing the jersey from when you played for Satan. Get that thing off. That stinks. Put on something new. I've given you this white robe. I've given you these white garments. You didn't have to wash them. There's no stain remover that you need to keep them clean. Jesus made them clean by his own blood. And you're wearing that old nasty thing. What are you doing? So, sorry, that's where my mind went this morning. And so he says this, he says this, Here, here's how you can know if you're wearing the old garment still. It stinks to the Lord, it grieves him. I don't mean that it stinks like, hey, take a shower. I mean, it stinks because it's sinful. 
See, we think about putting on new garments, and most people you know, maybe this is you, putting on new garments means acting like everything's fine and acting like you're churchy and using religious words. But you'll notice in this next passage I read that putting on new garments actually has to do with your inward character, exemplifying Christ and how you think and how you act and, and just not just the outward, but your inward heart, letting God renew it. He says, therefore, putting away lying. He starts with lying. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was a big fat liar. I would lie about anything, whether it mattered or not. It, I mean, it happens, right? Because we want to hide things. We're ashamed. And then he says, let each one put away lying. Excuse me. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Respect one another enough to tell them the truth. So putting away lying doesn't just have to do with you making yourself right. It has to do with how we treat our neighbor. Speaking the truth to them. And then he says, be angry and do not sin. Now, there's the one that hit me this week. I get angry all the time. And you know what I do while I'm angry? I sin. And the Lord says, be angry, but let's try being righteously angry. Did you know you can be righteously angry? Most of us would probably say that every time I'm angry, it's righteous. But I, I think there's very few times where righteous anger actually happens. One of which we can see in the New Testament where Jesus gets righteously angry. Not at people, but at the sins they're committing against one another. Because he shows up to the temple, and he's going to this big, beautiful temple, and inside he sees these money changers. We're thinking, okay, well, what's a money changer? Well, they, they, when they went to the temple to sacrifice, they didn't get to make no sacrifice of praise and just sing a song to the Lord with their whole heart. What they had to do was they had to bring an animal. And if their animal wasn't just right, according to the priests, they're like, hey, that thing's got some blemishes on it. You're going to have to buy one of ours. No problem. That would happen. But what they did was when these people would come from a foreign country, they would exchange their money for temple money, and they would have weighted scales so that how much this money weighed versus how much this money weighed, they would give them a false amount. They would weigh the scales and make it unfair. They were ripping them off. All they were trying to do was come worship the Lord, and the people that were supposed to help them to come worship the Lord and prepare the way were actually being a hindrance. They were ripping them off. How many people do you know that if you ask them to come to church, they go, all they want is your money. They're going to rip you off. They don't care about you. And many of them, it's true. They've experienced that. Jesus was angry at this. He was righteously angry. He went into the temple. He made himself a little whip of cords. He starts driving out the money changers and flipping their tables over. He was table tossing. He was the bouncer. And then the scripture was fulfilled that said, zeal for your house, Lord, has eaten me up. He was controlled by his anger, but his anger was about something that his father was, he had a, a congruent heart with the Lord. And so we can be righteously angry. I will say that most of the time I'm angry is not about things that really even matter. It's about things that are, you know, not hills to die on. But it eats me up. I get angry. I get bitter. I start blaming people. And before you know it, I've said all kinds of stuff that I can't take back. I can repent of it, but the damage is already done. James says the tongue sets a fire ablaze, and it burns up like crazy. It's like a forest fire. 
like flipping that tiny cigarette butt. Isn't it funny? You try to start a fire. You use kindling, and you get your matches, and you get your paper, and you're building this fire, and it won't light. But if you flip the tiniest cigarette butt near anything that might be leaves, whether they're wet or not, the whole thing goes ablaze. And that's what the tongue is. You don't have to have the right kindling. The tongue starts talking, and then it just sets a fire. And then people are hurt. There's damage. You know, and I posted just yesterday on Facebook this little picture. It said, the closed mouth gathers no feet. I like that because I talk a lot. And that's where the foot goes. The little size eight and a half goes in there. And it, you know. So here we are. He says, put away lying. He says, be angry and do not sin. And then he says this, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Wrath is when you're angry and you do something about it. He says, look, keep a short list. Keep a short account. Repent. Confess your sin to the Lord and then deal with it and deal with the consequences with those who you've sinned against. Ask them for forgiveness. Uh, Something that humbles me the most is when I sin and then I have to repent to my wife and I say, I'm sorry. And I say, do you forgive me? And she does. And then I say it to my daughter and she is so gracious because when I sin against her, she needs to be able to forgive me too. And then it says... uh, because when you, when you let your sun, the sun go down on your wrath, it kind of sits there and it festers and it's like bitterness and it causes problems. And then he says, nor give place to the devil. And that's the idea of being angry, sinning, letting the thing fester. And then Satan goes to work and he goes, <laughs> and he gets involved in the person you sinned against and goes, hey, that person hates you. Or do you know what else they said about you? And he just starts spreading lies, causing disunity and all kinds of problems. So don't let him use your tongue to start those fires. But then he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give him who has a need. Again, this part of repentance and putting off the old man, he says, let him who stole, don't, don't any longer steal, but actually get a J-O-B, work. And when you work, you're not doing it just for you, but he says, work so that you may be able to help those others who have needs. So it's, again, about loving your neighbor. And then he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but instead what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. You ever hear the phrase, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it at all? It, it's biblical in some ways. You know, he says, he's, don't, don't let corrupt words proceed from your mouth, but only say what is good and necessary for edification. What's edification? We've talked about this. It's strengthening and building up of other people. Our words very easily can tear people down. He says, use your words to build one another up. Don't say corrupt speech. Now, I find this interesting. One guy I was listening to was teaching this, and he goes, well, what does it mean by corrupt words? Like, what's your version? You know, everybody's got their own standard about what's a corrupt word and what's not, you know. And, and one of the things that came to mind, he said, was, you know, back when they made the film, It's a Wonderful Life, do you know it was censored? It was a censored film because of words like lousy, jerk, Seriously. And now they're in our common uh, vernacular, our common speech. Uh, Words like the F word and, 
you know, all these other words that, I mean, we, we go, well, that's a bad one, and that's not so bad, and, and we have the, he says, hey, look, just don't speak corrupt speech. Speak words that impart grace to the hearers. If you're questioning whether or not someone will be blessed by what you say, don't say it. He says, but, but why does he say that? He says, because our words, our tongue, under the control of the Holy Spirit, is meant to impart grace to the hearers. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. All of these things that we've talked about from verse 25 down to 30, they're all things that grieve the Lord. They're also things that cause disunity and they cause problems. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's not saying, don't say bad words because your parents said so. He's not saying, uh, don't lie because it's wrong and it's against the law. He's saying, don't do these things because you have not learned Christ to do these things. Who's the standard? If the standard is your parents, your parents won't always be there. That's, that's my testimony. My parents had standards for me. When I moved out, I did whatever I wanted. Did all the stuff that they hated. And then I found out later, they did them too. So it was a standard that was a moving scale. But Jesus never changes. He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he sets the standard. He lives by the standard. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He says, do as I do. Learn of me. Follow me. Take up your cross. Live, live a life that matters. And he, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, the one who keeps you and takes care of you. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Okay, these are all good teachings, but what's the linchpin? What's the thing that makes it matter? He says this, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another because of this, even as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness comes from unforgiveness, by the way. I've experienced a lot of it in my time. And he says this, he says, therefore, therefore always means in light of all that I've said, he says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Remember, grave clothes stink. Putting on Christ is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Every time we see this public thing happen, Jesus was baptized. Before he had ever performed any ministry, he was baptized, raised up. The Holy Spirit ascended on him like a dove. And when he did, the father spoke from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so when we put on these, these characteristics of Jesus, really, we put on Christ like a garment. We are pleasing to the father. And I don't know about you guys, but I want to be pleasing to the father. I don't want to disappoint him. More than I want to please my own father, more than I want to please my boss, more than I want to please my wife. I, I want to please Jesus. And if I can do that, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the other stuff in life will be taken care of. It doesn't mean it'll always be easy, but it will be in the proper perspective. And so I guess I want to challenge you this morning, if I haven't already, 
that if you're struggling and you want a new start, and I think I, I go through this about once a week at least, I feel like I keep failing over and over again. And how, do I, how do I get over the hump? He says, put off the old, put on the new. Recognize whose you are and live to please Him. Watch Him, learn of Him, see how He lived and live like that. It doesn't have to be overcomplicated. What was Jesus doing in the morning? He got up and He spent time with His Father. What did He do all day long? He lived to trust and obey His Father. And as He went down to bed at night, He was living to obey the Father. It's that simple, a simple focus and when we do that, what we're doing is we're putting on Christ. You won't have to be worried about what you say. You won't have to be worried about lying or stealing because you won't be living for someone that's behind a security camera. You'll be living for someone who you know is with you all the time. Who is God? Who is Christ? He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when you realize that he's with you, when you do everything you do, all of a sudden it changes your focus because I remember when my wife and I started dating and, and she went to go see her sister and her sister was watching this movie that was a rated R movie that was, had all kinds of craziness on it. And she said, I realized for the first time that what I watched, Jesus was there watching it with me. And she said, it changed the way I live. She's like, I had never even thought about that. Here, Jesus is with me, and I'm watching somebody that's mocking his name or cussing up a storm or committing lewd acts in front of my eyes, and I'm making Jesus watch that. His eyes are too pure to look upon that. Not that we can defile God, but the point is, is that we grieve him. He loves us so much that he died for our sins. How could we go back to him? Or when we realize that we've done him, how could we not say, Lord, please forgive me again? I'm jacked up. He's like, I knew you would. That's why I'm here. That's why I died for you. That's why I didn't just say, hey, do better. <laughs> I died for your sins. It's paid for. How cool is that? Fresh start every time. So let's pray. Father, as I think about prayer this morning, I think about what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. That the God of our that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. That the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Father, we thank you for Jesus the light of the world. We just celebrated his birth. Thank you that we no longer have to walk in the futility of our minds, that we don't have to walk in darkness, but the light of the world has come to the world to give light to men and women. But Father, thank you that he didn't stop there, but he wants to know each one of us personally, that he has the time for that, and that he wants us to become more and more like Christ so that the world will see Christ in human flesh, no longer walking as one person, but now filling us with the Holy Spirit and causing us to be the ones who dwell among men who are apart and from another kingdom. Lord, thank you for our citizenship in the heavenly kingdom, but thank you also that we get to be your ambassadors here on earth, living out your will, fulfilling your purpose that was set out before time began, and drawing sinners who need saved, who are, are lost, 
who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Lord, help us to bear with them and encourage them and share the gospel with them. Lord, we pray that our friends and family members and our co-workers would come to know the same living hope that we've been given. That you've called us to live according to a new standard, but you've also given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live for you. You died for us. How could we not want to live for you? Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for a fresh start. I pray that you would help each one of us to walk worthy of the calling with which you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.